Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomerPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron and take advantage of your rewards and if you've got questions comments or concerns about the show or you just want to talk you can find me on twitter i'm at homeward path mtg you can find me on facebook my name is adam spain like the country yes i got picked on about that for most of my life and you can join the conversation in the facebook group the homeward pathfinders So, head over, check all that stuff out, while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. At any rate, it's been a little bit of a wild week, and I have not been able to play as much as I would have liked. So, without further ado, without any real updates to give, let's dive into Budget Spotlight. This is a segment where we're talking about, this week we're back to our traditional formula for the color series, one card of each color in the shard and one card of all three colors. For starters, we have, as the core of the Grixis shard, we have a black card. That card is Extinction Event. And I know it's not been that long since I've done 
a riff on Extinction Event. But for those of you who didn't catch the last one, it's three and a black sorcery, choose odd or even, exile each creature of the chosen mana value. So the thing about Extinction Event and the big part of the reason I wanted to go ahead and highlight it again, even though it hasn't been that long, is the last time I highlighted this card, it was worth about 75 cents. Now it's worth $1.50. Still a really, 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 really good budget option. But it's already doubled in price once. So if you're looking to dip your toe into the finance waters, now I'm not one to treat Magic the Gathering cards like stock, but if that's something you're interested in doing, Extinction Event seems like a, seat, a, a reasonable place to start because you can get in on the relatively low end and it's not going to hurt you massively if it doesn't work out. You know, you can keep a playset for, you know, either Pioneer, Standard, Modern. I don't know why you play it Modern, but you have the option. You know, Pioneer, Standard, you have access to it in Modern. Uh, you can play it in Commander. It's still a very good card and worth $1.50 at least so you know from the financial side of it this thing's still a slam dunk even though it's doubled in price already and it's still a premier piece of removal able to serve as serve simultaneously as a scalpel and a sledgehammer and what i mean by that is it can either eliminate a particularly troublesome permanent i.e you use spot removal to set up a strategic use of Extinction Event. Or you use it as a sledgehammer where you just slam it down and hope to get as many things as possible with it. Either way, $1.50, come on. It's a no-brainer. Second on the list is our blue card. Now, black was the core. The other two cards are the, the surrounding colors. Blue... The next card is blue, and that card is Stubborn Denial. And I can't remember if I've ever talked about Stubborn Denial on this channel before, but uh, Stubborn Denial is a single blue for an instant. Counter-target non-creature spell unless its controller pays one. And then if you control a creature with power four or greater, just counter that spell instead. So... Finding a or fielding a ferocious creature has become more or less a trivial exercise in today's game. Between delve cards, creatures that get bigger, creatures that get plus, you know, uh, creatures with static abilities like Delirium that make them bigger, a la Grim Flayer, uh, delve cards that come down for unreasonably cheap mana costs, uh, balanced. X-cost creatures that'll let, like, uh, Stone Coil Serpent, Chamber Sentry, Endless One even, that come down for rate and just are big enough. Creatures like Gruul Spellbreaker can facilitate the ferocious trigger on Stubborn Denial. And not for nothing is, you know, hexproof on your own turn. But even in its fail state, it can really throw off an opponent's math or just cut off key interactive spells on curve. A really good example is against the card Languish in Pioneer. Languish is a backbreaker. Neg 4, Neg 4 to the board. 
get everything out of here. But that's a card that really, really wants to be cast on turn three or four, depending on the deck in question. Whether you're using mana ramp to get from, from two to four. And in this case, like, saying no can be the difference between a game that starts to slip away from you and a game that you continue to dominate after an oppressively powerful start. Even if you're just using Stubborn Denial for one mana, it's really, really good, and you can get Stubborn Denial for the same price as your Extinction Event above. $1.50 a copy. I know it's an uncommon, but it's worth it. It's really good. Next on the list, our red card for the week is Glorybringer. Glorybringer is three red red for a 4-4 Flying Haste Dragon. Relevant for some stuff we're going to talk about later. But five mana, 4-4 Flying Haste. That's already enough to get me interested, right? Five mana, 4-4 Flying Haste. It, it's kind of got a pedigree with, with that on it already, right? But it gets better than that, because when it attacks, you can exert it. And if you do, you'll deal four damage to target non-dragon creature. And when you exert a creature, it obviously stays tapped through your next turn. Now... The once premier threat from standard has become more of a niche threat for mid-range and pioneer. And what I mean by that is it's it's particularly sought out by decks that are essentially variations on the theme of big red. You look for Glorybringer when you want something to top your curve and you want something that will get your opponent dead in a hurry and take something with it if it dies right away. Like, if this thing comes down, gets an attack in, and dies, it got its value. Like, you know, turn, you know, the, the classic big red deck, the red Chain Whirler decks, turn three, Chain Whirler, turn four, Rekindling Phoenix, turn five, Glorybringer, attack you for 11. That'll end the game in a hurry, and you're a little bit bigger than the other aggro decks, so you can kind of pick and choose your spots on how you stay at them. Because when you're bringing the glory, somebody's got to be on the receiving end of it. And it serves, I mean, the best, the best way I can use, the best analogy I can use for this is it's like a cross between a flame tongue Kavu and something that's going to help you race. Just ask Wyatt Darby how powerful it feels to top deck a Glorybringer when you're racing. Like, it's pretty good. Glory brought indeed. And Glorybringer's price tag is a measly $2. $2. And there's a, you know, there's the, um, what is it, the textless foil that exists. So for those of you who like to spend more money on very, very pretty cards, you've also got that angle. And it's not that much more. I want to say it's in the $5, $6 range. And it's beautiful. 
I used to have one. <laughs> Moving on, our last card for Budget Spotlight. Again, all three colors. It's Grixis week. And, of course, one of the key tenets for being Grixis is everybody hating you. And what better way to make everybody hate you than to sit down at a commander table piloting Nekusar the Mind Razor. Uh, Nekusar is two, a blue, black, and red. Buys a 2-4 human wizard. At the beginning of each player's draw step, that player draws an additional card. And whenever an opponent draws a card outside of their normal one card, or may, no, it may just be whenever an opponent draws a card, Necrosar deals one damage to that player. Because whenever an opponent draws a card, Necrosar deals one damage to that player. So, it's one of the clearest directions for deck building in Commander, right? It's just like, you play Necrosar, you sit down, you reveal Necrosar, everybody knows exactly what your deck's about to do. It's time for some wheeling and dealing. Because every time you Miracle Reforge the Soul with a Necrosar on the table, everybody discards their hand, they draw seven, they take seven, and they hate you. Every time you play Windfall, everybody discards their hand, Everybody probably draws seven or more, and they take that much damage. You, you get to work on everybody at once. It's a very streamlined, very simple, very straightforward deck-building approach, and I simultaneously love and hate it. Because I love playing it, but I hate what it does to other people. The best way I can sum up Nekusar is with the, the title of that age-old movie, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. Because, I mean, wheels are plentiful in Commander. Even without the original Wheel of Fortune, which is on the reserve list and inflated to wildly unsustainable levels, and nobody's ever actually going to pay that for one that wants to use it. Even without access to that, Cards like Wheel of Fate exist, Reforge the Soul, Windfall. Uh, you've got additional support for Nekrasar in cards like Underworld Dreams, cards like uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank here. As an Omen Machine, not Omen Machine, uh, Megram, Shrieking Affliction. You've got Dark Deal as an additional wheel. You've got Reforge the Soul as an additional wheel. You've got a litany of options available to you. You can play Vision Skines. Everybody draw two. Two mana. That's two more damage. Burning Inquiry. Everybody draw three, discard three at random. That's three more damage. You can support the discard portion of the, the wheel effects with cards like Megram, two damage. I mean, there's, there's a lot that fits into the theme of making everybody discard and draw. Uh, waste not, every time they discard, for every land you make mana, for every creature you make a 2-2, and for every 
non-land, non-creature, you draw another card. Well, then you can play Psychosis Crawlers. Every time I draw, everybody takes damage. So you're getting hit on both ends. <laughs> you can play Narset and Notion Thief and really drive the screws home. So they just don't get to draw cards. Every time an opponent would draw, you know, Narset says the opponent can only draw one card per turn, period. Notion Thief says every time an opponent would draw cards outside of their draw phase, you draw those cards instead. And it's Flash. Put a wheel on the stack, Flash it in the Notion Thief, and make them decide which thing they care about more. Do they want to take a bunch of damage and draw their cards, or do they want to not take as much damage, but give you like 15 of them? But if you got Notion Thief, it doesn't matter. You still get all the cards. And all of that, that simple streamlined direction, that clear vision for how to build your commander deck, is $5. And again, it's commander, and it is the commander. $5. You only need one. You can do a lot worse. And not for nothing, but if you really want to tick the table off, Put a phyresis on it. Because nothing says I hate everybody. Like giving Nekusar Infect in Commander. And then, you know, phyresis the Nekusar and then play Vision Skines into Windfall and everybody's probably dead. <laughs> So moving on, we have our Brew of the Week segment. Brew of the Week is where we're going to highlight a deck that is either a previously competitive deck that has fallen out of favor or a new brew that nobody's really talking about. And this week for Brew of the Week, we're talking about Grixis Dragons for Pioneer. And this was a deck that was really popular when the format first launched and has kind of fallen out of favor ever since. I gotta be careful using that because every time I say the words fall from flavor, I think Brad has a involuntary head twitch. But I digress. The core concept of Grixis Dragons is a big mid-range deck seeking to dominate turns five and six on the board with powerful dragons. What I mean when I say a big mid-range deck, you've got big aggro decks that are kind of small game mid-range decks that want to Deploy creatures to the board from turn one through six, but are usually seeking to end the game about turn six, turn seven. Decks like Big Red, decks like Gruel, decks like uh, the the Rakdos mid-range decks with Croxa, decks like. Uh, Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, in this case, you're looking to do the opposite. You're looking to interact in the early turns. You're like part big mid-range deck, part tap-out control deck. But you're way less good in the long game than a true tap-out control deck is. Because you don't have just like a, a host of card advantage. You're more interested in little bits here and there. And just having really, really good cards at the top of your curve. 
the biggest incentive to playing a dragons-based mid-range deck in Pioneer is the card Silumgar's Scorn. Now, for those of you who don't know, Silumgar's Scorn is double blue, counter-target spell, unless it's controller pays one, I believe. And as an additional cost to cast, you can reveal a dragon from your hand. And then if you control the dragon or reveal the dragon as you cast Silumgar's Scorn, you just counter the spell. It's just counterspell. There's a very high ceiling in this deck acting as counterspell more often than not. Two mana counter target spell is nonsense. We've seen it for a long time. The fact that a card is sometimes two mana counter target spell is the reason Mono Blue Tempo even thinks about seeing any amount of play in Pioneer is because Wizards Retort is really good as long as you can play enough Wizards. Silumgar Scorn's no different. You just gotta reveal a dragon. So you just play a bunch of them. And as I mentioned before, you are not equipped to play super long games as you're light on any actual card advantage. You're looking to get card advantage from things that you maintain on the board. Not by just drawing a ton of cards intermittently, I guess is the word I'm looking for. For customization, budget builds will feature cards like Glorybringer, Dragonlord, Silumgar, and Kolagon and will focus on trying to quickly win once your dragons take flight. Uh, I don't know about you, but the thought of uh, Crux of Fate or Languish on turn four into Glorybringer, turn five, attack you for four, turn six, Dragonlord, Kolagon, attack for what, 11? Yeah, it'd be 11 or 10. You're on a really quick clock now. This game's over next turn. All you had to do was survive. Non-budget builds get to take a little bit of a different approach, and it's one that's a little bit better equipped for the long game because of cards like Nicol Bolas the Ravager and Goldspan Dragon. Goldspan Dragon in particular is really neat here because you can Goldspan Dragon, attack, make a treasure, and if your opponent tries to kill the Goldspan Dragon, you get another one. And you can play Silumgar's Scorn for two mana and counter their removal spell. Or you can, you know, if they target, you get another treasure so you can burn a, if you have, you know, non-budget, you've got access to Kolagon's Command as well. So you can, in response, kill their thing and get your other dragon back. Just keep on beating down. Sideboard options. I mean, this is a deck that can utilize a, a heavy focus on hand disruption, a heavy focus on board removal, uh, board wipes. I mean, it's, it's kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none sort of deck in the sense that it's got a little bit of capability in doing nearly anything. You can play more counter spells, but you're then more removal light. 
looking to leverage tempo windows with your dragons, you know, counter your opponent's key turn four, turn five play, jam a dragon down, get in there, especially with the gold span plan, it's much better that way. But you've got the ability between main deck and sideboard configurations to kind of choose what beats you, which is kind of a hallmark of successful mid-range decks basically forever. Is the idea that I'm I'm only going to lose to what I decide to lose to. So as far as an overview goes, it feels very much like a mid-range deck designed to beat other mid-range decks. Because you've got access to good, efficient removal thanks to red and black mana. You've got access to a little bit of tempo in cards like Scorn and Stubborn Denial. You've got access to powerful sideboard cards. Thoughtseize is a good card. Thought Erasure is a reasonable card. Faltung Invocation is a reasonable card. When you're both playing creatures to the board one or two at a time, Faltung Invocation can snipe one down and then make it harder to race. That's another one that works really well with the dragons. Uh, it's an edict effect. It makes your opponent sacrifice a creature. And then it goes a step further because if you controlled a dragon or revealed one as you cast it, you also gain four life, which can help in a pinch. It's another, it's another hit from Bone Crusher Giant you can take. A streamlined build that isn't trying to do too much likely has a great shot in Pioneer. And what, that, what I mean by that is take a look at the metagame, decide what you want to lose to, or decide what you aggressively want to beat. And just do it. Just, you know, if you want to control the board and you're less worried about cards on the stack, you only want to play like two or three scorns and you just want to have room for plenty of removal spells, do it. You will beat up on every creature deck you play because Glorybringer is really good. Goldspan plus removal spells is really good. Uh, and your dragons will close the game out in a hurry. Crux of Fate is another card that you've got access to. You can just destroy all the non-dragon creatures. Get it out of here. So, on the whole, between having access to powerful main deck options, a litany of sideboard configurations, whether you want to go the old hosers route uh, or different variations on your theme that you're, that you're built around, I really don't mind where this deck is positioned. And that brings us to our main subject. What is Grixis? Right? What is Grixis? Well, Grixis is the, the fifth and final shard that I'm going to do an episode on. Grixis is the locus of blue, black, and red mana, a barren, desolate wasteland ruled over by Cedrus the Traitor King. In the absence of the life-giving magic of green and the, the healing magic of white, Grixis is much more defined by what it doesn't have than what it does. You are very much aware when you look at the flavor of the Grixis shard in the cards from the Alara block. 
that Grixis is miserable. Uh, similar to Amonkhet. Grixis is an endless cycle of life, death, and undead servitude. Conditions are harsh, and death is no escape. Outside of Alara, Grixis is most typically associated with the arch-nemesis to the Gatewatch, Nicol Bolas, or other villainous-type characters. You know, we haven't exactly had a Grixis-colored hero. Its mechanic, Unearth, does a fantastic job of depicting what life is probably like for the average denizen of Grixis. Because creatures with Unearth, you can reanimate them, they can come back from the dead, but only for one more shot, and then they're gone forever, and we don't care about them anymore. Uh, you can you revive a creature with Unearth by paying its an Unearth cost from your graveyard, it returns to the battlefield with haste, and then you exile it at the beginning of the next end step, or if it would leave the field. Even if it, even if it gets bounced, the replacement effect just gets it out of there. It's gone. Now, from a competitive standpoint, Grixis decks tend to thrive when they are built around the idea of managing a single resource because you've got access to more proactive measures from red and the combination of red black but you're also largely tied into the more reactive nature of cards like uh, oh what was it the more reactive nature of cards like or color combinations of blue black blue red and the actual Grixis cards you know the card cruel ultimatum kind of epitomizes Grixis in a way that few things could possibly epitomize their shard cruel ultimatum is blue blue black 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 red red target player discards three cards loses five life and sacrifices a creature you return a creature from your graveyard to your hand gain five life and draw three cards and that was far and away the most powerful command at the time of its printing and still remains near the top i know genesis emergent and to an extent eerie ultimatum would like a word but Cruel Ultimatum takes the cake and eats it too. So, what is the competitive history, or at least my experience competitively with Grixis like? Well, the first deck I really encountered that was actually, I would call a Grixis deck, you know, we did blue-red decks splashing a couple of black cards, but that was when we were still kind of infantile in our deck-building understanding. Uh, we were still learning how to build good decks, and we were trying to push really bad mana bases to play cards we wanted to play. My first experience playing or playing against a really good Grixis deck 
was Patrick Chapin's core lash deck during the, the spring and summer of 2007. This was after the release of Future Sight. And it was a deck designed around the fact that Corlash Heir to Blackblade really liked for you to have swamps and didn't care what kind. Which is to say, you wanted swamps, but Corlash didn't care if they were basic. And Corlash had utilized the Grandeur mechanic. Grandeur being a mechanic that gave you a way to utilize extra copies of legendary creatures in your hand. Uh, Corlash allowed you to discard an additional copy of itself to go get two swamps from your from your library and put them on the battlefield tapped. Well, you could go get two shocklands when you did that. Urborg Tomb of Yawgmoth would then also turn things into swamps. So it gave you a very high swamp count for Corlash's other ability, which is his power and toughness is, are equal to the number of swamps you control. So between Urborg and the number of shock lands and basics you were playing anyway, Corlash should get big. And in conjunction with shock lands, Urborg, and Corlash, you also had access to a card in Tendrils of Corruption, which many of you pauper players are very intimately familiar with, that did a number on the Tarmogoyf aggro decks that were starting to spring up everywhere. Basically, if your opponent didn't open on Greater Gargadon, it was really difficult for them to outpace you. And what I mean by that, Greater Gargadon in those... Uh, mono-red splashing Tarmogoyf aggro decks. Greater Gargadon was largely used to keep your creatures from dying to Tendrils of Corruption. And if your opponent had the Damnation or the Wrath of God, you could sacrifice all your creatures to Gargadon and it would just come out that much sooner and kill them. Because it would be a 9-7 with haste. And Corlash being a massive threat was another big part of the equation. And its ability to search out lands from your library also gave you a way to grind through control matchups because you would, over the course of an average game, draw less lands. And therefore, you would be able to draw more gas and be able to keep up pressure on the control decks. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention one of the key cards for the deck, and one of the reasons Chapin built the deck in the first place, and that card was Rise and Fall. Uh, both sides were two mana. Rise was Rakdos, Fall was Demir. Uh, Rise would make it, would, uh, was the closest thing to him to Turok we got. Your opponent revealed, or what was it, your opponent would... Uh, I can't remember what it did now. I want to say it was it was really close to an approximation of him to Turok in your control matchups. Just basically a mind rot. But it also, the rise half of it had the ability to bounce a creature, which was really relevant 
against something like a Tarmogoyf or against something like a Greater Gargadon, you could bounce a creature Fall was the, the Rakdos half. Rise was the Demir half. You would bounce a creature your opponent controlled and another one from your graveyard to your hand. So you could bounce their Gargadon off the table and get back an extra copy of Corlash to make yours bigger and potentially win the game on that turn. The next Grixis deck I want to talk about kind of takes things in the other direction. This one was very reactive with cards like Remand, the the... The Chapin deck was very reactive with access to cards like Reman, uh, Rise Fall, um, Damnation. You know, you were you were interested in long, grindy games. Grixis Death Shadow in Modern is no such creature. Grixis Death Shadow is a powerful tempo aggro deck designed as a foil to the mid-range happy modern of the time. You know, Jund was a deck. Mardu Pyromancer was a deck. Abzan Midrange with Lingering Souls was a deck. The people were playing heavily. And then along comes Grixis Death Shadow with its one mana seven sevens. Uh, Lightning Bolt, Fatal Push, Snapcaster Mage, and Thought Seize provided the interactive suite you needed to protect your setup. You needed to stay alive long enough to lose an appropriate amount of life. Carefully managed life total was the key resource for the Grixis Death Shadow player. Bolt, Fatal Push, Snapcaster Mage, Thoughtseize, all did a reasonable job. A more modern variant might also include uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist because of its ability. I argue I would rather have the Arcanist than the Snapcaster, but that's just me. Just access to additional spells. The ability, you know, that's how you were interested in gaining card advantage in Grix's Death Shadow was by way of reusing your spells to turn them into two-for-ones. You know, Snapcaster turns it into a two-for-one. A successful attack with Dreadlord Arcanist turns a removal spell from the opponent into a two-for-one for you. And they supplement all of that, that, like, tempo-y removal counter magic you have access to Cards like Stubborn Denial, which is great alongside Death Shadow because it gets over four really quickly if you're trying hard enough. If you go Fetch Shock into Fetch, if you go Fetch Shock Thought Seize into Fetch Shock, leave up interaction into Fetch Shock, you know, you're already there. That's a big, big Death Shadow. And now you've got access to Stubborn Denial. On top of everything else, you've also got Delve Creatures available. In Typically it was Gurmag Angler, almost exclusively, but there's also the option to play Tassigur the Golden Fang, 
both of which are cards I generally love to play. But the real kicker was the sort of win out of nowhere combo, and I use combo in air quotes, of Death Shadow and Teamer Battle Rage. Because you swing a 7-7 Shadow, they declare blocks thinking they've got you, and just like Ember Cleave in Standard, every time they think you don't have it, you do, and they die. Uh, the next on the list is Grixis Control from Rivals of Ixalan Standard. And this one's a little bit of a special boat. It was designed around keeping the board clear. Because Rivals of Ixalan Standard was very heavily defined by... Mono-Red Aggro. Green-Red Monsters. And... The, the fading shell of the energy deck. So you wanted to keep the board relatively clear and then dominate the game with the Scarab God. Now again, Patrick Chapin's Corlash deck wanted to leverage board control. Little bits of hand control, but he was interested in leveraging board control. The Death Shadow deck is interested in utilizing tempo mana efficiency, creating turn, you know, creating time walk scenarios for your removal spells. This Grixis control deck is right back where the Corlash deck was. It is a thousand percent interested in keeping the board clear and then just jamming this Scarab God down and taking exclusive privation over everybody's graveyards. It was typically built as either a blue-black deck that splashed red in order to gain uh, additional cheap removal spells and cards like Magma Spray, powerful sideboard cards like Dire Fleet Daredevil, and sometimes even board sweepers the likes of uh, Hour of Devastation. Or it was blue-red-black where you played all of those cards plus Harness Lightning as a general, as a general rule and then you just splashed the Scarab God. Either way, your, your avenues to victory were typically either a few hits from Torrential Gear Hulk and, uh, well, basically just a few hits from Torrential Gear Hulk, or it was the Scarab God got down Messed up everybody's graveyard because you got to untap with it and you won the game. It's that Scarab God has the that favorite line of text of mine. I love it to death. That line of text that isn't written anywhere on the card, but you just know looking at the card, you're like, if I untap with this thing, I'm going to win. <laughs> if, if I get to untap my lands with this thing in play, I should probably win the game. And that's what this deck did. It wanted to maximize exactly the Scarab God and otherwise keep the board state relatively simple so that old Scary G could do its job. Last but not least, I want to talk about Grixis Midrange from 2019 to 2020 standard. And most of you are thinking, what Grixis Midrange? Nobody played that deck. I beg to differ. The whole time Nicol Bolas the Ravager was legal in standard, 
I could count on this deck showing up every time I was just trying to blow off some steam after a long day's work. Every time. Not a singular moment that I went, oh man, this is a really nice, this is a really nice uh, experience playing arena I'm having today. Let's go ahead and knock these dailies out. Did I not get immediately punished by at least two or three people playing this deck? It was largely focused on maintaining control over the hand. Nicol Bolas the Ravager took cards out of their hand. Thought Erasure did a good job with the hand. A flipped Nicol Bolas the Ravager would deplete the opponent's hand in no time while you were drawing cards. Once Nicol Bolas Dragon God reveal, uh, revealed, once it was printed, I should say, once Nicol Bolas Dragon God was printed, it became another piece of the puzzle. And by and large, this deck just kind of ground people to death that weren't prepared for it. Like, it was a miserable experience to play something like Boros Angels against this deck. Because they had all the flying blockers, they had all the good removal, they had the ability to take away your best cards with Thought Erasure, and they had boluses. And then even after rotation, even after Nickel Bolus the Ravager rotated, I still ran into a deck like this regularly that was supplemented, Nicol Bolas the Ravager ended up getting replaced by Fires of Invention. And Fires of Invention is aggravating to play against. I don't know if y'all know that. But especially Fires of Invention into um, Fires of Invention into Extinction Event on turn four into Bolus Dragon God Sarkin the Masterless on five. That was kind of a pain in the butt to play. Kind of a pain in the butt to play against. So top to bottom, it was it was exactly the kind of deck we're talking about, right? It wanted to manage one resource, cards in hand. That question we used to frustratingly ask every at the end of nearly every turn at my LGS. Cards in hand. Got cards in hand? How many cards you got in your hand? That's what you were trying to find out. You wanted to make sure your opponent's answer was always zero. Make them live off the top of their deck and beat really, really good magic cards. That's what you were in for. So... Each of the examples I used today, I tried to find ones that tried to sort of dictate different resources. You know, Nekrasar is a good example of using accumulating cards in your own hand while messing with your opponents as a resource. Uh, the Grixis Dragons deck is a good example of dominating the board and trying to control fundamental turns i.e. making sure your opponent's turn that they have to kill you doesn't happen. The Patrick Chapin deck did a good job controlling the battlefield and controlling the mana advantage thanks to Corlash and Urborg. 
the Death Shadow deck does a good job leveraging tempo, and the uh, oh, what is it? The Grixis control deck was a board control and graveyard manipulation deck, and then we had the Grixis midrange deck from Standard that was all about running you out of cards, put you in top deck mode, and bludgeon you over the head with good cards. So. I hope that gave you a good example of like what I see Grixis as, which is the style of deck you play when you really, really, really want to make sure you're dictating the terms of engagement to your opponent. You tell your opponent what this game is about, but you want to do it from a more reactive posture. You know, it's not a 16 counter spells kind of deck. That's not what we're in for. What it is is a focus. You're, you're hyper-focused. You still have elements of board control if you're interested in controlling the hand. You still have some amount of uh, interaction for the stack or interaction for the opponent's hand when your goal is to interact with the board. But you know how you're going to win the game. You know the way the game has to go in order for you to win. And that's what, in my mind, separates Esper from Grixis. Esper decks tend to struggle actually figuring out how to win the game. They just do a really good job figuring out how to not lose it. Grixis decks see the game from its end all the way back to its beginning, where the Esper decks see the game from its beginning, and they might get to an end eventually. So... That's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, you got questions, comments, concerns, don't forget, send them at me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. Uh, you can join the conversation in the Facebook group, Homeward Pathfinders. Uh, if you're a patron of the show, you gain access to the Patreon, the Patron Pathfinders Discord, where we talk about episode topics, where we talk about... Uh, we talk about episode topics, we talk about deck lists, we talk about ideas, and we just generally kind of shoot the stuff, as it were. But with that in mind, I'm going to have a guest co-host on the next episode. I'm not sure if it's going to happen next week or the week after. It's going to depend on how our schedules line up. But the goal is to have a guest co-host on next episode. With that in mind, we need dad jokes. I don't have any this week either. We ain't got them. We need them. So, that's going to wrap it up. Again, I leave you with the words of wisdom from one Peter Capaldi, 12th Doctor. Listen, it's really easy to find a reason to say everything sucks right now. Everybody's going through something. So just remember when interacting pe with people, whether in person or online, never be cruel, never be cowardly. Remember, hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So laugh hard. Don't squander your resources. Be kind. We'll catch you next episode. Be safe, everyone.